Okay, so every blessing to you all, and welcome back to another open air video. If you had asked me what are the most terrifying words in scripture, I guess I would have to say to you, depart from me, you workers of iniquity, I never knew you. To think there will be people arriving in eternity who thought they were saved, to then find out that they were never saved must be devastating. Such people thought they would be commended by the Lord Jesus Christ and in reality are condemned by the Lord Jesus Christ. Please turn to Luke chapter 13 and let's take a look at some of these verses which are terrifying and yet are in the Word of God for a purpose. You are told to make your calling and election sure. You are told to lay hold of eternal life. Now you already have eternal life. It's a present uh, gift. You have it right here, right now, but you are told to lay hold on it. You are told to make sure that you believed in sincerity, that you haven't believed in vain. I mentioned that during my Devil's Gospel video some weeks ago, because you can believe in vain, you can trust in a prayer, you can trust in an experience, you can trust in church membership, you can trust in religion, and completely miss the mark. So it is imperative for you to make sure that you're saved, and then to rest in the Lord Jesus Christ. But uh, let's take a look at Luke chapter 13, verse 23, please. Then said one unto him, Lord, are there few that be saved? And he said unto them, Strive to enter in at the straight gate. For many, I say unto you, will seek to enter in, and shall not be able. Now we know that Christ is the door. Christ is the bridge between God and man, heaven and earth. He is a mediator between the one true God and mankind. So we know that already he is making it clear that it's going to be tough to be saved. In fact, it's going to be exclusive to be saved, meaning this, that salvation is going to come via one person. You see, the Catholics want to be saved. Protestants want to be saved. Jews want to be saved. Muslims want to be saved. Sikhs and Hindus, Freemasons, Buddhists, want to be saved, and yet the truth of the matter is there's only one way to be saved. In fact, somebody once said quite wisely that everybody wants to go to heaven, but nobody wants to die. A lot of truth in that. But the Word of God tells me, Jesus speaking, verse 24, strive to enter in at the straight gate. It's going to be narrow. It's going to be so exclusive you wouldn't believe it. And people say, well, I'm going to try and get to glory my own way. I'm a pretty good person. I am confident that if I do this or if I do that, I'm going to make it. And they are simply deceiving themselves. To think that such people have the audacity to arrive in glory and somehow boast about how good they were. And the Lord God is somehow going to turn around and congratulate them. You're simply deceiving yourselves. You're no good. But it goes on to say in verse... 25, when once the master of the house has risen up and has shut the door, and you begin to stand without and to knock at the door, saying, Lord, Lord, open unto us, and he shall answer and say unto you, and are you not whence ye are? Then shall you begin to say, We've eaten and drunk in thy presence, and thou hast taught in our streets. That term, we've eaten and drunk in thy presence, I always think of the Catholics, they worship the Eucharist. And they think when the priest holds up the chalice that the wine becomes blood and when he holds the wafer up that somehow it becomes a literal body of the Lord Jesus Christ. And they eat it 
they consume it. And of course you know that if that was the case, if the priest could literally change bread into flesh and wine into blood, it would be cannibalism. But the Lord told you, depart from me, all you workers of iniquity. 27. But go back to 25, and he shall answer and say unto you, I know you not whence ye are. Now he is sovereign, he knows all things, but this term to not know such people denotes a personal knowledge, like a husband knows his wife, like a mother knows her child. It's intimacy, and that's a picture of being saved. You go from knowing of the Lord, head knowledge, to knowing him in your heart. Your heart has been circumcised. When it says, I don't know you, it means just that, that you were never saved to begin with. But they are pleading with him, 26, we've eaten and drunk in thy presence. We went to mass. We did religion. We thought we were good. We thought we were something special. And it's absolutely devastating. The 27 in its entirety, but he shall say, Jesus still speaking, I tell you, I know you're not whence ye are. Depart from me, all you workers of iniquity. Unsaved people, dead in their sins. Sure, they were religious. Maybe they were members of the Rotary Club. Maybe they were Freemasons or Catholics. Maybe they were Protestants. Maybe they went to Bible-believing churches. Maybe they prayed and tithed and do good works, but they were never born again. This is why it's so imperative to make sure you are saved, to make your calling and election sure. 28. There shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. When you shall see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets and the kingdom of God and you yourselves thrust out. Now the context here is the Jewish Messiah speaking to the children of Israel. Okay, you need to understand that. Because Abraham, Isaac and Jacob were Jewish patriarchs. A Gentile in the first century probably wouldn't have heard of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. Whereas of course a Jew would have heard of such people because they were the patriarchs. So the context is to unbelieving Israel, but we can still read these verses and get application in reference to those who are not saved. Those who are religious, because they call him Lord, Lord, 25, not just Jesus, not just Christ, but Lord, Lord. And you think somebody who is calling someone Lord would be saved, but that's not the case. Lord, Lord, open unto us. It's a picture really of Noah's Ark. Noah preaches for many years and the floods start to come from heaven and under the ground and the family of Noah board the ark and he's been preaching for a long time. It was 120 years, Genesis chapter 6. And as he boards the ark with his family, which is a picture of tribulation saints, the floods start to increase. As I say, the water starts to increase. The ark is lifted up. But you can just imagine people banging on the ark. Let us in, Noah. Screaming. And you know it's too little too late. And here, the same picture is in the context here. Lord, Lord, open unto us. And he shall answer and say unto you, I know you're not, whence ye are. I don't know you, where are you from? Then she began to say, we have eaten and drunk in thy presence, and I was taught in our streets. Big deal. I spent years going to a church before I got saved. And I knew who the people were from the Word of God. I had a basic understanding of who the people were in the Word of God, but I didn't know the main person in the Word of God being Jesus Christ personally until I was born again 14 years ago. 
There shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. First death, of course, when ye shall see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God and yourselves thrust out. That's pictured in Luke 16, where the rich man arrives in hell and he sees Abraham afar off and Abraham can see him. And there's this two-way dialogue. Must be horrific. You thought you were saved? You thought you were something special? You were a child of Israel? Or you arrive in hell and you were a good Catholic, a good Protestant, a good Baptist, a good JW, a good Mormon? But it's not enough. You weren't born again. You didn't receive Christ's imputed righteousness. And that goes on right up until the second death, Revelation chapter 20. Go to Matthew chapter 7, the cross-reference to this. The very purpose of this message is simply to get people saved, and if you are saved, to rest in the Lord Jesus Christ. I don't want to cause anybody any undue anxiety, but as I say, you are told to examine yourself. You are told to make a calling, an election sure. Matthew 7, Jesus Christ still speaking. Look at 21, please. Not everyone that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven. But he that doeth the will of my Father, which is in heaven. You have to do something in order to enter into the kingdom of heaven. And most churches say, yes, you've got to join our denomination. You've got to be baptized. You've got to do this. You've got to do that. No. Let's read on. Many will say to me that day, great white throne judgment, Lord, Lord, have I not prophesied in thy name? And in thy name have cast out devils, and in thy name done many wonderful works. Works. Wicked works. Such people were trusting in their works. Such people had works which they thought were going to impress the Lord. In fact, such people thought that their works were evidence of being saved. And in a future message, I'm going to speak about this in more depth, because I'm very concerned that such people are messing around with works, and such people are counterfeiting the work of the Holy Ghost. 23, and then will I profess unto them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you that work iniquity. I never knew you. Not you were saved for 5, 10, 15 years and you got into sin and didn't repent. No, I never knew you. It goes back to that term, to have a personal knowledge of somebody, to know somebody on a personal basis. Husband knows his wife, wife knows her husband, a mother knows her child, a father knows his child. That's the intimacy that is spoken about here. So when it says, I never knew you, he means just that, I never knew you, you never saved to begin with. And that is pictured from 1 John chapter 2, they went out from us. Had they been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out from us, demonstrating that they were not any of us. So when somebody departs from the Lord, in a permanent sense, and never comes back to the Lord, there's every chance they were never saved to begin with. And yet I do believe this, that if you are saved, you are forever kept saved. I believe in that. I believe once a sinner has been justified, exonerated, once a sinner has been given imputation, being Christ's righteousness, they are saved, and they are kept saved. But the truth of the matter is that most people in the Word of God uh, which go astray were never saved to begin with. As I say, 1 John chapter 2, and probably, let's see now, uh, 1 Timothy chapter 4. But you were told in 21, But he that doeth the will of my Father which is in heaven. What is the will of the Father which is in heaven? Go to John chapter 6, please. This will be a very short message, elementary, really, but it needs to be done because there are far too many so-called Bible teachers who are muddying the waters, who spend far too much time preaching from Greek 
Hebrew and Aramaic and ever get to the heart of the matter. John chapter 6, please. Look at 27. Labor not for the meat which perisheth, but for that meat which endureth unto everlasting life, which the Son of Man shall give unto you. For him hath got the Father sealed. God will give you everlasting life. It's a gift. Okay, it's a gift. It's a free gift. If I put 20 pounds in your bank account, and I say to you, there's 20 pounds in your bank account, it won't benefit you until you go and receive it and spend it. You may say, thank you very much, James. It's very kind of you. And just sit and observe that 20 pounds in your bank account. But until you receive it, it won't benefit you. See, God has provided an atonement. He has provided everlasting life for the sins of the world. That's called provision. But you have to appropriate it. You have to personally receive it. God has drawn all men unto himself. The Bible says how he takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked. He's not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. But you have to help yourself. You have to believe on him. You have to reach out to him in order to be saved. 28. Then said they unto him, What shall we do that we might work the works of God? They know that what he is speaking about is critical to grasp. They want to have some understanding as to what he is speaking about. And yet the sad matter is that most of this group of people found here in John chapter 6 are going to miss the mark completely. But let's read on 29. Jesus answered and said unto them, This is the work of God, that you believe on him whom he hath sent. The just shall live by faith. You believe on him, you trust in him. It's as simple as that. He literally dies in your place. My God, my God, why has thou forsaken me? Picturing a sinner in hell. He becomes sin for you. And when he dies on the cross, it says he goes into the tomb, but his spirit goes into the ground. And he goes into the ground and he sets captivity captive, and he proclaims victory over the unrighteous dead, the demons, the devils, unclean spirits. This is the work of God, that ye believe on him whom he hath sent. Now can you do that? Can you believe on him? Can you trust in his death, burial and resurrection? If you can, you will be saved. But if you don't believe on him, you're going to be damned. We are still in John chapter 6. Thirty-seven. All that the Father giveth me shall come to me, and him that cometh to me I will no wise cast out. He is able to save them to the uttermost that come unto God by him. You can't go wrong when you come to the Saviour. Forty. And this is the will of him that sent me, that every one which seeth the Son and believeth on him may have everlasting life, present tense, and I raise him up at the last day. It's as simple as that. There's no problem when it comes to understanding how a sinner is saved. And if people could grasp the simplicity of salvation, life would be so much better. Go to John chapter 1. Just some very simple verses now to further cement my message this morning. John 1, 7. The same came for witness, to bear witness of the light, that all men through him might believe. Trust him. Receive him. 17. For the law 
was given by Moses, but grace and truth came by Jesus Christ. 37, and the two disciples heard him speak and they followed Jesus. You need to follow Jesus. Don't follow a man, don't follow a woman, don't follow a ministry, you need to follow Jesus. 43, the day following Jesus will go forth into Galilee and find a Philip and saith unto him, follow me. That'd be the last thing he would say to Peter at the end of this gospel. Chapter 2, verse 5, His mother saith unto the servants, Whatsoever he saith unto you, do it. Whatever he says unto you, do it. Chapter 2, verse 11, The beginning of miracles did Jesus in Canaan of Galilee, and manifested forth his glory, and his disciples believed on him. It's so simple. And yet for far too many people, they can't grasp it. Chapter 2, 22, when therefore he was risen from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this unto them, and they believed the scripture and the word which Jesus has said. You get saved by believing, and you are damned by not believing. Chapter 3, verse 17, for God sent not his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. He pictures Noah's ark, as I say, you board the ark, and he becomes a captain of your salvation. He will get you from A to B, and he will keep you saved. You can't lose your salvation, but if you fall into sin, if you become carnal, if you backslide, you can fall overboard concerning your fellowship with the Lord, but you can never lose your salvation. Look at 15. In fact, look at verse 14, please, to get the context. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have eternal life. This is such a great message. And I say this to you this morning, if you're not saved, why are you not saved? What are you waiting for? So what about Christ? Go to First Peter, please. First Peter, chapter 4. It's feels like mid-October as I stand here this morning but in reality it's mid-April so somewhat cold but it's not breezy first uh, Peter 4 look at 17 please for the time has come that judgment must begin at the house of God and if it first begin at us watch the end be of them that obey not the gospel of God judgment must begin at the house of God now Simon Peter was a Jew and he's writing to save Jews so that term, house of God, technically would be in reference to believing Israel. If a Jew got saved in the first century, he would have a, he'd have a local synagogue that he would probably be a part of, uh, and that synagogue would, be, would become a place of worship. If a Gentile got saved in the first century, he would be meeting probably in his home or somebody else's home. But judgment must begin at the house of God, and if it first begin at us, watch the envy of them that obey not the gospel of God. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. It's a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God, and yet most people think it's nothing to worry about whatsoever. 18, and the righteous scarcely be saved, where should the ungodly and the sinner appear? If the righteous, that's you and I, if we're born again, scarcely be saved, like by the skin of your teeth, where should the ungodly and the sinner appear? They're going to burn. But listen to me, you're saved by grace. Ephesians 
to 10. And you are saved unto good works. You are kept saved by Christ Jesus. So don't get me wrong, but the truth is that most people are just going to make it into eternity. And I think as I observe the world, and I have been for the last 14 years, that most Christians, especially those that live in the West, when they arrive in eternity at the judgment of Christ, are going to have nothing awaiting them. Now they're saved. John chapter 3 says you can't even see the kingdom of God until you're born again. But to rule and reign with the Lord Jesus Christ in the millennium for 1,000 years is conditional on what you did after you were saved. In other words, did you put the flesh to death? Were you consecrated? Were you divorced from the world? Did you put Christ first and your friends and family and work colleagues second? What does the word of God say? If you love those, if you love uh, mother and father more than me, you're not worthy of me. If you love others more than myself, you're not worthy of me. You have to hate mother and father in order to be a disciple of my a disciple of my son. You have to love him more than you love your own friends and family. Nineteen, wherefore let them that suffer according to the will of God, commit the keeping of their souls to him in well doing, as unto a faithful creator. You need to suffer. You will suffer if you are saved, if you live for the Lord, if you speak up for the Lord, if you are a brother and you go into the streets, you will suffer for him. If you are working with unsaved people, you will suffer for him. If you are living with an unsaved woman or an unsaved husband, and I'm not speaking about common-law marriages, I'm speaking about somebody who you are married to in the eyes of God. If you're living with an unsaved husband or an unsaved wife, or maybe your children still live at home, or maybe your parents still live at home, maybe your parents are up in years, that's hard on you, and you will suffer for that because you have to reflect your Saviour's light. But a judgment must begin, 17, at the house of God. What should the end be of them that obey not the gospel of God? They're going to burn. It's as simple as that. And that's why you were told to preach the gospel in season and out of season. And yet, the truth of the matter is that most people that have lived or will ever live will never receive the gospel the road to hell is going to be wide, Matthew 7. And many there be which go in thereat, concerning hell, of course, but the gate, the entrance, uh, Luke 13, Matthew 7, will be narrow. A few there be which find the gate. Why? Because most people don't want to believe on a man. Most people are self-righteous. Most people hate the idea of somebody doing something for them. And most people think if they can get to heaven themselves, if they can arrive in eternity and say to the Lord, look at me, what a great man or great woman I was, that somehow he's going to be impressed with that. That's a dangerous deception. And I made the case a little while ago that when push comes to shove, we all need a substitute and we will all take a substitute. And I put it to you this morning that if you are sick in hospital and you need a blood transfusion, the chances are you would take a blood transfusion. Very few people will say, no thank you, I've had a good life. I'm happy to die. Most people are desperate to extend their time on the earth. So you've got several verses from three parts of the New Testament. But one last time, most people that think they are saved are not saved because they haven't submitted themselves, according to Romans 10, unto the righteousness which comes from Christ. They won't be born again. They won't receive Christ's imputed righteousness. Uh, and as a result of that, they will perish when they die. You can't save yourselves. I can't stress it enough. You may think you're something special. You may think that 
you're a good person. You may say to me, well, James, I've raised five children. You know, I've held down two or three jobs. I've paid off two mortgages. I'm a pretty decent person. In the eyes of man, that may be the case. But in the eyes of God, it makes no difference whatsoever. You must be born again. And that's why I think Matthew 7, 21 to 23 is absolutely shocking. Because it says, how many, not some, but many will say to me, in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not done this? Have we not done that? And he says to them, I never knew you, depart from me, ye that work iniquity. Never saved to begin with, playing with religion, trusting in, in an experience, maybe attending a local church. It could be a liberal church, it could be a conservative church. But it makes no difference. And it's absolutely devastating to be told in eternity, I never knew you, you never saved to begin with, I can't help you, and therefore I have to send you to hell forever. You can't go to heaven because your sins haven't been forgiven. You can't enter into my abode because you're unclean. In fact, you wouldn't want to enter into my abode. You feel out of place entering into my abode. And that's the truth, isn't it? Most people want to go to heaven, and yet when you ask people to define what heaven is all about, they have no idea. Do you know something? That when you go to heaven, if you're saved, the purpose of heaven, in essence, is to worship Jesus Christ for all of eternity. Now, do you understand that? If you don't understand that, you need to understand that. Heaven isn't going to be full of 70 black-haired female virgins. Uh, heaven isn't going to be a place where there'll be perpetual intercourse, which is what the Muslims and the Mormons hold to. Heaven will be a place of eternal rest and bliss, worship. Now, it's true we're going to have mansions. It's true we're going to have angels in submission to us. It's true we're going to be quite possibly... Uh, traveling to different planets um, but ultimately it's about Jesus Christ it's about entering into a relationship with him here and now on the earth which goes into eternity but you can't imagine somebody dying their sins and wanting to go to heaven and worship Jesus Christ for all of eternity it'd be hell for them and for those in heaven it'd be hell for them as well I mean you know we live in a fallen world we see things every day of the week which we find abhorrent and the thought of spending eternity with some of the people that we hear about or we read about or we see with our own eyes is absolutely uh, terrifying but I think I've said all I wanted to say this morning John's gospel is a great gospel to read when it comes to really understanding how simple it is for sinners to be saved in fact, I'll just give you one more scripture from John chapter 3, verse 36. He that believeth on the Son hath everlasting life. And he that believeth not the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abideth on him. You have everlasting life the moment you believe on the Son of God. There's no works involved. There's no church membership involved. There's no tithing involved. He that believeth on the Son hath, present tense, everlasting life. You got it right now. And he that believeth not the Son shall not see life. And that's the problem. And that's 
what Luke 13 is speaking about, Matthew 7, and to some extent, 1 Peter chapter 4. They won't believe on the Son. They won't trust in his death, burial, and resurrection because they think there's something special. They're self-righteous. But the wrath of God abideth on him. God's anger abides on you. You are under the judgment of God, and that judgment, that condemnation, will, abide, will abide on you indefinitely. So one final time, you think you're going to be commended by the Lord Jesus Christ when you get into eternity, and in reality, he's going to condemn you because you didn't believe on him. You weren't trusting in his death, burial, and resurrection. You thought by going to church, you thought by doing this or doing that, that somehow it would all work out well. But in reality, it was all in vain. So that's all I want to say. Every blessing to you and Maranatha.